Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the chapel for the destitute. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that he condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. The Old Deacon That mysterious law of association by which the sound of bells, the scent of flowers, the falling of a leaf, or any other incident, calls up from memory's storehouse thoughts and feelings long since cherished but almost forgotten, seems by the order of providence to be a wise arrangement by which the events of the past shall bear some relation to the things of the present, and often to the future, binding together in a series of links, generation after generation, making of all one vast family, so that anything affecting one in some degree affects all. The falling of a leaf one calm evening in autumn became the parent of these reflections. The sun had just sunk down behind the hills, tinging the heavens with the purple hues of his departing glory. Placid night hung out her sable pall, veiling the distant objects from view. And silence, with her mighty eloquence, poured her strange language on the pensive soul. I sat where I had often loved to sit, beneath the outstretched branches of the balsam poplar. The stillness of the evening was so intense that the striking of the hour of nine by the bell of old St. Chad's reverberated through the dale, and when the undulating sound had died away, the silence was more profound, but broken at length by the tick, tick, tick of a falling leaf, as it dropped from branch to branch, resting finally at my feet. Thoughts unbidden came at the sight of that leaf, as it now lay amongst its dead companions. What a lesson, if wisely read! How emblematical of this life's changes! How descriptive of relatives and friends who have dropped from their various fears and now lie in the dust! Never on any previous occasion had so many of those departed ones been brought back to memory, 
Friends, old and young, rich and poor, from towns and hamlets, churches and marts, seemed to gather around me. It was a moment of subdued pleasure. I could not literally shake hands with them, as in bygone days, but I was glad they had stood before me, though only for a few moments. I never could discover a reason why anyone should fear holding mental communion with those departed dear ones, whose company we so much loved when living. They may or may not be unconscious of those sweet recollections that will not say to them farewell. We still see their smiling faces, hear their merry laugh, or listen to their cheerful song. We walk with them in the field, sit with them in the garden, mingle our psalms, our hymns, and prayers at the family altar or in the church. Their well-known opinions govern many of our actions. What we know they would have thought, or what we think they would have done, exercises no small influence on what we think and what we do. Is it not well for us that it is so? Many of the joys of the present spring from the joys of the past, and no small portion from a remembrance of those we have loved. But the great mistake is when we make what might be one source of softened gladness a cause of pain and sadness, murmuring and repining, when we ought to calmly submit and where submission would indicate the truest wisdom. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away, was no foolish expression. For the dead are like the stars, by day withdrawn from mortal eye. But not extinct, they hold their way in glory through the sky. One of the most prominent figures which seemed to stand before me that calm evening, was a grey-headed veteran whose locks had become hoary in his master's service, and one of those singular characters both loved and feared by several who knew him, for reasons they still remember. He was by trade a flannel weaver, Steadiness and industry in early life enabled him to become a manufacturer, and by caution, prudence, and perseverance he secured a competence that enabled him to retire from business before old age or infirmities compelled him. But he did not travel on the continent to spend his wealth, or build a mansion and set up his carriage to consume it or fill his house with servants and fast company to devour it. He knew who had given him all his banknotes, and he knew he would some day be asked what he had done with them, and he tried to be a faithful steward. I have no wish to forget my first, second, and last interview with the eccentric old man, I had gone down to take service in the church of which he had long been a worthy member, and an active, patient, prudent deacon. For many years 
His house had been the home of the workers in the Lord's vineyard, irrespective of creed, and he furnished many a hungry ambassador with something more than a cup of cold water. I was then a very young man, and rather afraid of several in the congregation, the deacon in particular. His countenance was neither placid, sanctified, nor heavenly-looking, but the very contrary. He had a large face, strong features, his eyebrows fledged with long white bristles, and his hair iron-gray, defying all order. He knew little about syntax, but his language was powerful and fearfully direct. Talleyrand said that words were invented to hide thoughts. This may be true in regard to diplomatists, such as Talleyrand was, but the old deacon would have been astonished to have heard him. I had finished my day's work in the pulpit, and on leaving the chapel found the deacon waiting for me at the gate. Placing his arm in mine, he said, "'Well, my young friend, I suppose thou wilt have to take a little provender at my house. Thou art very welcome, and that will make the feed no worse.' After the repast, he, sitting on one side of the fire, and I at the other, and after a considerable pause, he said, "'Art thou married, my young friend?' "'Yes,' was my answer." And hast thou family prayer in thy house? Yes, I again replied. I am glad to hear that. There are many people that can talk loudly about religion abroad that have not much at home. All their religion is for exportation, none for home consumption. But I am always pleased to see young married couples begin right, and there is nothing so likely to keep a family right as a family altar. Many families professing religion have gone wrong for the want of it. Keep up piety at home, my lad, keep up piety at home. It keeps the fireside warm and comfortable. I am thankful that the very first day our Betty and me began housekeeping, we adopted Noah's plan when he came out of the ark. Did I ever tell thee about it? No, sir. This is our first conversation. Well, then, I will begin a little further back. Before I began to follow her, as they say in this country, I was careless, ignorant, and sinful. I thought much about her but if I offered to speak to her, I lost all my words and trembled all over. I followed her at a distance from place to place, and one Sunday evening I followed her into a chapel. And it was well for me I did. I shall never forget that night. The light of the gospel of Christ shone into my mind with such terrible force that I saw and felt myself a great sinner. I forgot all about Betty in anxiety for the salvation of my soul. 
The day following, thinking I was the only person in the workshop, I kneeled down under my looms, and began confessing my sins and iniquities in a loud whisper, praying for pardon and peace, while sweat ran down my face. One of the weavers who had entered the room in his slippers, hearing my groans and sobs, stooped down to look at me, and to my astonishment and confusion said, "'Well, lad, if thou art half as bad as thou says thou art, thou ought to be sent to Botany Bay.' I made no reply, but was greatly ashamed, and crept from under the looms to commence work. He said nothing to the other weavers about it, for which I was thankful. But the arrow from the Lord had pierced to the depths of my guilty conscience. I durst not again pray in the workshop, and I had no private place at home. I remembered that there was, in a neighboring field, an old deserted stone delf. Again and again in that stone quarry did I plead the shed blood of Christ. Shed for every sinner, therefore shed for me. At last I found what was more valuable than all the delfts and mines in the world could yield. I found the pearl of great price, and was so happy that I durst tell the man who caught me praying under the looms. After considerable difficulty on my part, and unreasonable obstinacy on the part of Betty, we agreed to be married, with the clear understanding that at least once each day the Bible should be read, and both join in prayer for God's blessing to rest upon us. We have had many a laugh about our first beginning. Neither of us had ever engaged in prayer audibly in any meeting, though we had both been some time members of the church. So I took hold of the Bible, thinking I could manage that part better than the other. After reading a chapter, we kneeled down, and I requested Betty to pray. I waited and waited, but no voice. Then, with a choking utterance, she said, "'John, thee pray, for I cannot.' A big lump came in my throat, and as soon as I could get it down, I replied, "'Nor can I. What must we do?' After kneeling a little longer, we rose to our feet without another word, for we could not speak. That was our first attempt at family prayer, and that God who saw the fullness of our hearts recorded our wishes in heaven.' And while on this subject, I will mention one other occasion when my nerves were a little tried. Betty and I were very careful and industrious, I as a journeyman weaver, and she as a spinner. We saved a little money, and I bought a pair of looms, a jenny, and other requisite machinery, then another pair, and then another— then bought a pack of wool, and began manufacturing for ourselves, 
getting on and on until I could keep stock until the market suited me. One rather rough winter day, a dashing gentleman with plenty of rings and gold chains came to seek my stock of goods. After a careful inspection of the whole, he asked my price for all. I told him, and without a word, he gave me a cheque on Rawson's bank for the amount. He then put on his coat and gloves, looked out into the dark, wet night, and I saw he seemed troubled. The coach was gone, there were no cabs in our neighbourhood, and railways had not then been thought of. He walked back into the house and forward to a bright fire in the kitchen, our principal sitting-room, and asked if he could not get lodgings somewhere in the neighbourhood. Yes, I replied, my wife can make you up a clean, comfortable bed in a plain way. You should have seen our Betty's face when I said that. It was almost scarlet, for she was afraid of the fine gentleman. But she quietly went upstairs to make all ready. He took off his overcoat and gloves, and sat down by the kitchen fire, and seemed very glad to remain with us. We talked about wool and pieces, and prospects of trade, until eight o'clock, our time for family devotion. My wife had got all ready for the grand man, and was sitting in her usual place. I was rather timid, and had not taken hold of the Bible at the usual time. My wife saw it, and gave me a look which said, "'What, are you afraid of the big man, too? Do your duty, and never mind him.' That look nerved me. So I took down the Bible, saying to the merchant, "'Sir, ever since this dear body and me became man and wife, our custom has been to daily read God's word, and bow down before him in prayer.' I do not know your views or opinions about these things, but feeling it to be our duty, we hope you will excuse us. Certainly, certainly, was the reply. I read the 104th Psalm, our lesson for the evening, and in prayer besought the Lord to make us thankful for the day's mercies, to bless the dear church to which I belonged, to bless the stranger sojourning with us for the evening, to save him from ever making a bad bargain, and that if his riches should increase, that he might never set his heart upon them. And I prayed for his wife and six children he had left in Scotland, that God would take care of them in the absence of the husband and father." and that not one of them might ever give their parents any trouble, finishing with the verse in the evening hymn, O oh, may our souls on thee repose. The gentleman tried secretly to wipe his eyes with his scented pocket-handkerchief. The mention of his wife and children had touched his soul. I did much business with the fine Scotchman to our mutual profit, and he never sent an order without a note saying, 
Do not forget the Scotchman and his family when you pray, and use the words of that memorable night I was your guest, especially that part, May not one of his children ever give their parents any trouble? I did well in business, not only with the Scotsman, but with many others. And now, by God's blessing, I am provided with bread, but I am not without my crosses, and they always come from the wrong quarter. But they frequently remind me of an old pack-horse driver that travelled this way fifty years since. He was a good Christian man, carrying his goods on the backs of two horses, from Manchester to Leeds and Halifax. One of these horses was black, and if he was well loaded, and as much on his back as he could carry, he would walk on safely, steady, and straight and his master had no anxiety about him. But if he had a little load, and especially none at all, he would kick and gallop, leap over hedges, or run through gaps and open gates, getting both the driver and himself into scrapes and trouble. I am just like that wayward black pack-horse, when the load is heavy, and I have to cry to the Lord to help me to carry it, and when I feel my weakness and dependence the most, then I am the most strong, and walk the most safely. And the Lord knows that, and for my own good, and perhaps for the good of others, He keeps me well weighted. But bless him, he will lay on me no burden, but what he will enable me to carry. I knew to what the deacon more especially referred when he was talking about his burdens. They mostly came from the church, and ever since the first seven deacons were chosen in Jerusalem to the present hour, deacons have had their full share of anxiety on behalf of others. A link between the pulpit and the pew, the minister and the people, they have often to carry the sins of both. A church prosperous and at peace is to them real happiness. A troubled, declining church is a perpetual sorrow, and with all their failings the church and the world owe much to patient plodding, enduring deacons. I have mentioned that the old deacon was very direct and pointed in his observations. He knew nothing of circumlocution. He was loving, honest, straightforward, and wished to do everybody good, as the following circumstance will fully illustrate. I had called to take tea with him one Sunday. During the repast he was silent, and seemed a little troubled. A young man sat at the table who had been preaching that afternoon what he thought to be a most magnificent sermon from the text, All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. He opened out his discourse in a grandiloquent style, quoting from Young, Morning stars exulting, shouting o'er the rising ball. From Shakespeare, 
the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, and that sublime piece from Pollock's Course of Time, beginning, Whose garments were the clouds, whose minstrels brooks, whose lamps the moon and stars, whose organ choir the voice of many waters, whose banquets morning dews, whose heroes storms, whose warriors mighty winds, whose lovers flowers, whose orators the thunderbolts of God, whose palaces the everlasting hills, whose ceiling heaven's unfathomable blue. Mounting up still amongst what he called the stellar worlds, he expatiated on the satellites of Saturn, Uranus, and Jupiter, and finished his airy flight in the Milky Way. After tea, the old deacon requested the young preacher to go with him into the front parlour. When both were seated, he said, "'My young man!' Thou hast been flying thy kite high this afternoon, very high, and if thou dost not mind, the string will break, and it will come wibble-wabble down. Thou hast been walking over the stars in stilts, cloud-capped towers, shouting o'er the rising ball, satellites, Jupiter, and Milky Way indeed. It is thin milk in the pulpit. Thou got so high up, thou never saw Calvary where the Maker of all died for those gospel-hardened sinners that were staring at thee. Thou never told us that the work of God that praises him most was the work of redemption, shedding his blood for a guilty world. My dear young friend, do come down before thou tumbles down. Keep at the foot of the cross. It is he and only he that humbleth himself that shall be exalted, either in the pulpit or out. Few can conceive the agony of the young preacher while the old deacon was so tenderly crushing him. He had to preach again the same evening and preach to this terrible old man. He was in great fear and trembled as he walked up the pulpit steps. During prayer he wept, and the people wept with him. Christ crucified for perishing mortals was his theme, and God blessed his own word, as he ever will. The old deacon met him at the church gate, saying, Thou wilt have to pass my house, and must call to take as much supper as ever thou likes. Let me take hold of thy arm, for thou art younger than me. And now, my dear young brother, God has blessed us all to-night. I have been with the Master and Peter, James and John on the Mount, for we never get on the mount without the master. The Lord will make thee a very useful preacher when he has cured thee of cloud-capped towers. The young minister 
never forgot the old deacon's theological lecture, nor ever will, but he counts him as one of his truest and best friends. He never walked over the stars in stilts after that day. With all his mildness of disposition, his love and encouragement given to the humble and sincere, it will be seen how he could not bear foppery in the pulpit. The cloud-capped towers young man fared little worse than another rather inflated orator, who, when speaking, frequently twisted his fingers in a rather showy watchguard, and had so corked up his nose with snuff that it was painful to hear him speak, as it is all snuff-takers. The hymn, Awake and Sing the Song of Moses and the Lamb, was from his mouth, Awake and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. This important man, when once taking tea with the old deacon, said, I think, Mr. Kershaw, it is woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. To which he received the answer, And woe unto the gospel if thou dost preach it. But so intense was the probationer's conceit that even this keen reproof was lost upon him. He only laughed at it. It would have been well for him if he had profited by it, as the other young man did. My last interview with the venerable pilgrim was one calm Sabbath evening when his work was nearly done. I never see grey heads, those crowns of glory, drop from the ranks of the church militant, but I know that church has sustained a great loss. Grey heads amongst young officers are ballast, for young officials are all clever, very clever, and yet I love to see young officers in the Christian church. The church needs them. They are the future hope of the church, and allowance must always be made for their youth. They mean well, and in time will think and do well. But the young in any Christian community would do well to set a very high value on age and experience. Woe be to the church that rejects the counsel of grey heads. For many years, it has been my custom to get to the seaside as often as I possibly can, for I love the mysterious ocean, and often talk to its rolling waves, and sometimes to the countless pebbles and boulders that lie on the shores. Taking one up that was round and smooth, I addressed the stone, as if a living being, saying, Mr. Boulder, you are very smooth and very round. Have you always been so smooth and so round? Could the stone have spoken? It would have said, No, I have not always been smooth and round. I had once sharp corners on me, but I had been in many storms and many tempests, and those storms have rolled me out and rolled me in. 
until they have rubbed all the sharp corners off, and now I am smooth. So it is with old deacons, officers, and members. They have been in life's many storms, and sharp corners have been rubbed off them. Sad experience has mellowed them down, and they are invaluable to our churches, but leave us they must. The moment I beheld the now sick and feeble deacon on the day of our final interview, it was evident the weary wheels of life would soon stand still. It was the Sabbath school anniversary that day, and for more than forty years he had taken great interest in school anniversaries, but for him the last was come, and unknown to him the teachers and scholars formed in procession, the girls clothed in white, and went to sing the last song in this world for their dear old friend. Betty, the now aged Betty, his beloved companion through years of travel, sat near his couch, looking out at the open window, on the Durnley Vale. When the procession stopped at the front of the house, Betty, in a low but earnest tone, exclaimed, Dear me, dear me, what is this? The teachers and children, in full rich tones, sang, When I survey the wondrous cross, and there is sweet rest in heaven. The good old dying Christian, for whom they were singing, held his withered hands together. With swimming eyes, he said, It is too much, it is too much. What have I done to deserve this? Oh, what joy, what joy! Lord Jesus, thou Prince of glory, that died on the cross, save every one of these dear teachers and scholars, so that I may hear them sing again in heaven. Save them, save them. A few days after, the inhabitants of the village of Durnley looked out from their doors and windows to take their sad farewell of old John Kershaw, long their neighbour and long their friend. And many are still living who will remember the good old deacon.